Hey, this is Web Free Talks. The rule of this podcast is simple. We only talk with people who have hands-on web-free building experience. So if you are a hacker, entrepreneur, or investor, you can get inspired by their stories, lessons, and fuck-ups. My name is Mac, and I'm hosting this pod. If you want to stay in touch, go to twitter.com slash webfreetalks, click the link in the pinned tweet, and join our Discord community. Let's go. Today's guest is Oriel Ohion, co-founder of Zengo. And Zengo is a very, very special wallet because this is a wallet that, believe it or not, does not have a seed phrase, which is pretty confusing when you hear about it for the first time. But we will get to why it's even possible and what kind of technology do they use to protect the user's funds. But before we get to that, Oriel, could you tell us a few words about your crypto story? How did you get here? Thank you for having me first. It's a pleasure to be on the conversation and on the show. So look, I don't have a very compelling story to say, except that I've been in tech for nearly two and a half decades. I've seen the birth of the internet. I've seen the birth of the mobile internet. So I've seen many important revolutions in tech. And I have always been a very, very early adopter of new technologies and early builder of new ways of technology that was true in Web 1, in Web 2, and now in Web 3. I've been a long time skeptic of crypto. I was even hostile to it for many, many years until I saw the light. <laughs> that was uh, <laughs> five or six years ago. And I don't have a very interesting story. I just heard a very compelling podcast about Ethereum. This is how I got to crypto. And from there, I got very curious. And by becoming curious, I became active. And by becoming active, I wanted to do something into it. So that was really the story. Mm -hmm. The short element of background is I have built and sold multiple businesses in Web 1 and Web 2. I was also an investor. I co-founded a venture firm, a successful one in France. And at some point, I wanted to be back in the action. And I felt that crypto was the right story for me and just the right story full stop. And, mm -hmm. uh, and here I am. <laughs> okay. And is Zengo your first crypto project or have you tinkered with something smaller before? It's my one and only love. <laughs> <laughs> love at first sight, as they say. I mean, I very early on knew that I wanted to do something that was consumer facing. I really quickly found out that the wallet problem was a very compelling problem to solve. And we can talk about why. And so now it's been four years. So it's nearly coincidental with the moment of, you know, the second wave of crypto innovations. So yeah, that's my only project and I'm doing nothing else. I actually offloaded other things I was doing on the side to really 100% focus on that. Mm -hmm. So why the idea of Zengo have stolen your heart? Like, you know, what's the story here? <laughs> very good way to uh, to frame that, given what I said before. Look, it's very simple. My path to discovery to crypto was, I think, like nearly everyone. I wanted to buy some Ethereum. I bought it on an exchange. Very quickly, I realized that there were all the interesting things to be done could be not be done on an exchange. And now it's even more true, more than ever. But at the time, it was already true. And then I realized I needed a wallet. And so I tried many wallets, all of them. At the time, there were maybe you know, 20 or 30 famous words. I tried every one of them. And, and the reason I tried all of them is because I didn't like any of them. I found it and I still find it insane that the 
front could depend on a set of 24 words. And it didn't matter that it was software or hardware. I could not understand that the future of this crypto economy and possibly of the economy was going to depend on a piece of paper. And so I, I said to myself, maybe something better can be done. And very quickly, I also understood that the wallet was going to become such a central part of whatever we do on the blockchain. So it felt important as a problem. I also like the idea of having an interface that is so central that is going to be used frequently, that is possibly going to address a very large type of audience and not just experts. And so I like the combination of all of those, but it came with a very big challenge. If everyone is building wallets based on a private key and seed phrases, there must be a reason. Maybe this is the only way. So I asked myself the question, like, can we do it in another way? And, and when we started, there was no other way. It was the only way. So we spent, and we can talk about that now if you want, but we spent a lot of time trying to figure out another way. And this is how the story got started. Okay, so what kind of ways have you explored apart from the obvious one with the seed phrase and, you know? So there was really two ways. It was either we were going to do a private key-based wallet and we looked at all the form factors possible, including hardware. And the problem that we wanted to solve is not so much how easy it is to onboard the user, because eventually it's fairly simple to write 24 It's painful, but it's not complicated. The problem was we wanted to really solve was the problem of the recovery and all the possible type of attacks and errors. And there are many, many, many. So we tried to think about ways to abstract that, but we were always coming back to the damn piece of paper. And there is no, or, or something that looks like a piece of paper, and we could not imagine that this was going to be an acceptable solution. The second way was way easier, but we still feel that it was the wrong way, and it was a shortcut, was to build an exchange. So you basically tell to the user, you just build your Web 2.0 account with a login and a password, possibly a second factor, and we host for you the private key. And this is the story of the Binance, the FTX, the Coinbase of the world. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a very useful type of services. But we felt that we would not bring anything new to the market. So, so we started to look for alternative security primitives, cryptographic primitives that could allow us to do that. And there were one beginning of new option that was on the market, which is multi-sig. And so you, you start to see very viable options like BitGo and Gnosis uh, with Gnosis Safe and things like that, that could be an option. But very quickly, we realized mm -hmm. the limits of that. And we started to look at the time. Now it's becoming very obvious because many companies are doing it. At the time, we were the very first company to look into it in multi-party computation. And people sometimes compare multi-sig with multi-party computation, but they are very, very different. The principle is you're not signing transactions alone versus like being alone with your wallet and your seed price and your private key. And so we felt it was going to be much harder to, to do it because we were the first. There was no legacy document. There was no legacy library. There was no legacy tooling. There was no battle-tested solution. There was an open source cryptography around MPC, although MPC has been around for two decades. But we felt that if we managed to do it, we would open a new avenue that would be compelling to the market and possibly more than the market. So, so we felt attracted by the challenge. So we liked the challenge and we kind of grinded around the challenge for a year. That means that for a year, there was no company, there was no product, there was no funding, there was no VC, there was just us with 
researcher, whiteboard, and trying to build a prototype of what could become the first MPC wallet ever designing in the, on the planet. And so this is what we've been doing for a year. Once we've done that, then we understood that it was possible to do it, and then we moved to the serious phase, which was to build a company around that. And so, so we ignored multisig, and we ignored multisig for two reasons, essentially. The first one is multisig is not truly blockchain agnostic. It has to be built into the protocol, which is the case, for example, in Bitcoin. It's kind of the case in Ethereum, but once you want to move beyond, it's, it doesn't work. But the more important issue is that in multisig, although you are removing the single point of failure, because you are not a single signer, you still have to ask to each participant to generate a pair of public and private keys. And so you're back to problem number one, right? So if a signer is becoming unable to sign, then the wallet is compromised and unable to, to perform. There is another third problem, which is also important, is that the access structure, meaning who signs what, is public. And you don't always want to reveal that for both privacy and security reasons. So we felt that multi-seek could serve certain needs, but not the need that we wanted to address. And we wanted something that would be at the same time superior from a security standpoint, but also usability standpoint. And so we quickly found in love with, with the problem. As they say, fell in love with the problem, not with the solution. And so, uh, but, but on the other side, we had to pay a high price to find the solution. So, so we found the solution eventually, and we built the first open source library, MPC library, with direct MPUs in the world of, of wallets, which is today now the most popular open source MPC library. And since then, we've built a, a crypto wallet for investors, which is called Zango, and it does many, many things, and we can talk about that afterwards. Initially, it was extremely simple. It was just like sending, receiving, Bitcoin, Ethereum, done, nothing else. But it was our first version, and uh, now we've been running it now for uh, three years. And we are one of the leading wallets on the market uh, with hundreds of thousands of, of customers all around the world and with many, many more things coming up. So that's kind of the story of how we got from the problem to the beginning of the solution and then build from there. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, how does it work? <laughs> because, you know, MPC, I know there's multi-party computation. I've seen this phrase in many places. I also read a little bit about it, of course, before we... We got this interview scheduled, but could you expand on that? Like, how does it work and how it's possible that it's safe? So, very good question. And indeed, you know, now MPC has become such a buzzword. You see uh, every second company that is raising funding right now is kind of trying to use this word. And very quickly, you realize they don't really do MPC or they don't have MPC or they don't even have the beginning of anything around it because it's just a cute word that has that has been around, but, but the reality that it's a, it's a true compelling breakthrough innovation in cryptography and in particular in custody. So just kind of trying to simplify a little bit what it is and also try to take some parallels. So a typical wallet, the way it works is you generate a public key in correspondence with a private key and together they're going to be able to sign transactions, right? That's, that's how it works. And if you have the private key, you can always access your funds and you can always sign transactions. And so that private key is the single factor that's going to allow you to do that. And if you lose that single factor, your wallet is compromised, lost forever. You know, the story of all the hacks and all the funds lost, etc., etc. Also, why so many people get fished and get taken over in their account is because people, once you have the private key of anyone, you can access their funds. So that's wallet as we know them today. 
you know, I think 99% of the world of wallets work like that. Whether they are mobile wallet, desktop wallet, hardware wallet, all of them. Multi-party computation works radically different. It's still generating a public key. So you still have the same public key and it's still broadcasting transactions in the identical way to any type of transaction broadcast from a public private key wallet. But there is no private key ever generated, meaning there is no single secret that is allowing you to sign a transaction. So what happens instead? Instead, you have independent parties, independent computation entities. In our case, it could be different type of entities, but in our case, it's a mobile phone and our server. Okay, but it could be two mobile phones, it could be two servers. In our case, this is like that. So two entities that don't need to know each other, that are not connected to each other, they're not relying on each other. And those two entities are going to independently generate secrets, okay, cryptographic secrets. Each of those secrets in themselves are completely useless. They cannot be used. If someone gets hold of one of these secrets, they are unusable, they are useless, they are unreadable completely. But by way of mathematical operation and by way of cryptographic operation using, among other things, zero-knowledge proofs, they are going to be able to collaborate and talk to each other and reach at some point a threshold of truth, which as triggers a signature as if it was a private key. So what that means is that at no moment there is a, a private key that is generated or that is reconstructed. And that is in opposition to, to Shamir's secret that you might have heard. Shamir's secret is the process where you take a private key, you split it into pieces, and at the moment of signature, you reconstruct the private key and then the transaction is signed. Here, there is no private key which is reconstructed. It's actually never generated in the first place. And therefore, it can never be lost or it can never be taken over. However, the secret shares are able to communicate to each other to generate a threshold signature. It's called also threshold signature, TSS, threshold signature, so that you allow the wallet to perform that transaction. So the benefit of that is pretty obvious, is that at no point there is a single point of failure, meaning that if someone takes over one of the entities, okay, or the secrets owned by the entities, this secret is useless. So the attacker would have to take control of both parties. So the cost to do that at scale is enormous, like to a point that it's hardly imaginable to even begin to think it's possible. But more importantly, it gives you the best of both worlds, meaning you still give to the user an on-chain wallet that he controls, where he can tra start transactions, where he defines transactions, and only he can do that no one else, but he has the assistance of a second party. And the word assistance is very important. So he has the assistance of a second party to sign transactions to avoid the scenarios where he alone becomes a liability, either because he's a target for an attack or because he is likely to make a human error at some point. So now to translate that into user experience terms, because it's important to always come back to the user experience, what MPC allows you to do is to basically create the equivalent of a Web2 environment where you allow the user to sign with something that is familiar with without the necessity of 24 words and very complicated seed phrases, but still give him the benefits of a Web-free environment where he's on-chain and in control. And as the assistance, in our case, of a server to augment 
his experience and his security experience in what he's doing. Now, that comes with a trade-off. You are losing by adopting this kind of solution, the absolute control. What I mean by that is once you make the choice of a private key wallet, you are in total sovereign territory, meaning that everything is controlled by you, including the mistakes and the attacks and the errors. In the MPC environment, you are in an assisted environment where you give up a little bit of that control. You are still in control of the most important things, meaning the ability to make a transaction and to recover, but you are not alone to sign transactions. And that gives you this assistant and augmented security that is so much needed into the space, but you comes up with also superior user experience. So that's kind of a framework on how to think about how MPC works in the world of, of wallet. And today MPC is adopted at a very, very large scale in crypto. I think most of institutions in the world today use solutions based on MPC. Two days ago, BNY Mellon, the largest American bank, announced that they're going to provide custody services for crypto, which is a great news. So they're using a solution which is built on MPC, right? So that's kind of the level. And now it's coming to consumers. Also, there are many solutions. For example, Coinbase has announced that in Coinbase.com, you can access an MPC wallet. They've made an acquisition to do that. And there are other players that are coming to the space. Today, we are the leading player as an MPC wallet in the industry. I think Fireblocks also use MPC as far as I know. Correct. So Fireblocks is the biggest MPC operator for institutions. And we are the biggest MPC operator for for retail. So we were the the Firebox of retail and they are the Fireblocks for institutions. Indeed. Just a short break to remind you that if you like this podcast, please don't hesitate to subscribe and give it a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever platform you use. Thanks a lot. So I'm wondering about this because, as you said, this is like an assisted environment. And what would happen if your servers go down? Is it like when the bank servers go down that you cannot make a transaction until they are up again? Or does it work somehow differently? Correct. So if our servers go down, you would not be able to make a transaction. So that's the trade-off that was referring to. Like once you are in control, everything is on you and you have the ability to make anything that you can as long as you have the private key. Indeed, if our servers go down, you cannot make a transaction. Now, that comes also with a solution that we have built from day one. First, our servers are hardly ever down. Like I think in the history of three years, we've been down an hour because there is so much redundancy, but we went even further. We created an assisted disaster recovery. We call it the guaranteed access solution in case we are permanently down because as you understood, we co-signing transaction. So what we've built is a set of independent parties that are not linked to Zango that are able to take over completely the role that we have for signing transactions. If ever we were unable to technically or legally sign a transaction, so that users are never locked. So for example, if the company was going to shut down or be victim of very strong DDoS attack or things of that nature. So all that is documented. It's also open sourced. It's on GitHub. And there is a quarterly audited uh, report that attests that this system actually work and can work forward. So this is in place. We never obviously had to ever use it, but this is there in case you need it. You know, it's like a, an insurance. You hope you never need it. But if it's there, uh, you're happy that it's there. Yeah, definitely. There's never too much security when it comes to Web3. Never. So 
you know, I'm wondering like how it's different from the other solution that's being discussed a lot lately, which is called account abstraction. I know that it's different, but could you explain where the difference lies? Yeah, so account abstraction is still very abstract. To be honest, it's discussed a lot, but it's not really implemented. So we still at the discussion and research phase where MPC is already deployed at scale second. Account abstraction applies to Ethereum and EVM-only wallets. So it's not a solution that's going to be applicable to non-EVM blockchains. It's applicable to Bitcoin, it's applicable to Solana, it's applicable to Cosmos, it's applicable to all those environments. So the benefit of MPC is that it's blockchain agnostic. It's agnostic to, to elliptic curves and to, uh, to signature schemes. So in essence, right now, Zango works on ECDSA and EDDSA, and it could work tomorrow on ring signatures if we decided to support Monero, for example. We don't, but we, we could. So it's really agnostic in that matter. The difference with account abstraction is that account abstraction is the logic is managed by is managed on chain in the contract. Where in MPC, the same logic is managed by a private computing entity. Okay. And so it's not necessarily on chain. That comes with trade-offs also. You know, the benefit of having everything on chain is, you know, transparent. You see what's going on. You can audit it. You can peer review it. Uh, but it comes also with security attack vectors because it's public. Everyone can see where the problems are. And, and, you know, that's why all the DeFi acts happen is because everything is visible. So it comes with some trade-offs. And in security, there is not 100% uh, things that are okay. For us, the important dimension is not just the security. It's also the usability. And so we always opt for things that can do less, but that are vastly superior in terms of user experience. And so the compromise to us that we made as a company is to always go in favor of the best ratio for user experience and security. And so if you go into user account abstraction, although people will try to claim that it's super simple and everything, it's impossible to follow. Like the level of complexity around it is pretty insane. And, you know, as a matter of fact, if you're looking, by the way, just a data point, the majority of cryptocurrencies today are not even hosted in Ethereum wallets. They are hosted in, in exchanges because for the majority of people, it's just insane. Like people can't deal with this level of complexity. And so, so we feel that with MPC, you are maybe not going as deep into the, the possibilities, but you are augmenting significantly in terms of user experience in a way that doesn't force you to go to exchanges. You're still in control, which is so way better, and you can do web-free stuff, which you can't with exchanges, but you don't need to become a, a PhD expert into solidity and code and advanced complex user interfaces. So that's kind of the differences that we see. And of course, for us, the dimension of being universal meaning to have the wallet as a remote control to blockchains where you don't need 30 wallets, one for EVM, one for non-EVM, etc., etc., is very important. So we know that it's not perfect, but we think it's perfect based on how we consider or how we look at the opportunity and, and the market. Yeah, like, you know, before we met, of course, I tested Zengo and this registration, it took me, I don't know, like a minute or maybe even less. It was super smooth. and the UX is definitely good. And the point you made about the exchanges, 
you know, my father has some crypto and he asked me, should he hold it on Binance or Coinbase? And actually, like, he shouldn't because, you know, it's better to have your own custody. But to be honest, as he is not advanced enough and I know that he could be a target of a phishing attack or even, you know, click something that he shouldn't click, I would not recommend him a cold wallet a hot wallet cold wallet might be okay but then you know it's also like there are some problems coming with it when it comes to transactions and so on so actually like after i tried zengo this is the first wallet that i might recommend to my father (laughs) to be honest so really you know chapeau bar for making it uh, super super simple and you know noob friendly I, i might say so i'm wondering you know how have you done it like how have you got first users because you know starting a wallet is extremely hard because people need to trust you with money and you know it's even harder than starting a defi because you know when you start a defi it's like pretty like they may give control of some part of their funds but they don't need to give you control of the whole amount of money they have but in wallet like whatever it's there it's in control of uh, either some contract or some code or some company. So I'm wondering, like, how have you acquired your first users? Because now you have, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, something something like that. 700,000. So how have you started it? How have you acquired first users for your wallet? So, so first you said something that is very true. And, you know, I empathize with anyone trying to build a wallet. And uh, I really congratulate anyone trying to reach any type of of audience in this space because it's so, so hard. I mean, building a wallet is probably, I mean, everything is hard in life, but it's crazy, insane hard. And it's even harder when you consider that the typical avenues for marketing are completely shut down to wallet. It's impossible to use uh, Google, Facebook, Twitter. They, they don't allow advertising for crypto wallets at all. So you need to be, to be very creative on how to find them. So the path that we used for Zango was first to start with the research and the cryptography by creating trust around the new paradigm that we were bringing to the market. And for that, we decided to go open source, which was counterintuitive because it was going to give away the most important part and the heart of the of the wallet. But on the other side, we had no choice. We felt that we had no choice. If we didn't do that, people would look at us as a black box. So we started marketing cryptography before we were marketing the wallet. And that created some kind of first layer of awareness around what we were doing in the researcher community, in the industry observer community. Now, not everyone was a fan of it because, you know, what we realized very quickly is choosing a wallet is a bit like choosing a religion. Once people have made their choice, it's really, really hard for them to change. And it's okay. But what we also realize is that people don't necessarily want to accept the fact that there are other religions and become very quickly Ayatollahs. So we try to respect that, to respect the fact that multiple religions were going to be around and try to make our way in explaining in kind of the open way what we were doing. Then what happens is we had a product and the way we, we try to approach is we did like a very, very old-fashioned way. We tried to approach anyone we could find around us. And I do remember that the first, I think, thousand users were only people that we knew. Like we were looking at the sign-up email. There's, oh, it's a friend of mine and someone that I know. That's my neighbor. That's our colleague, uh, the wife of his, our investor, whatever. So we were knowing every single of our user 
at the beginning. Then what happened is very quickly, I mean, it's, it's not my first company and I've been building mobile apps for a while. We started to use non-paid marketing techniques that allowed us to be referenced in third-party sites and in, you know, good, with good intention. And we started to see an inflow of people coming from channels that we didn't control. And eventually started to find people that we didn't know, which was the good news. And the thing that really accelerated the growth, because you don't reach 700,000 customers like that, not in crypto, it's really, really, really hard. I mean, most of the wallets you see on the market, including some you think are big, are actually not that big. They're actually way smaller than us, like way, way smaller than us. Although you see them on Twitter all day long, although they have a follower count and everything. So it's because it's really hard to get to critical size, really hard. And to get to millions, like even reaching a 1 million user is really, really hard. So the way we did it is we started to build a network of what we called affiliate. So first, we have a lot of word of mouth and inbound coming from people like you who said, all right, that wallet is great. It's not for me, but I do see who it is for and I'm going to recommend it. And people like you, we have a lot, right? And we like those people. We like that they admit that it's not for them, but they admit that it's for someone else. Now, our job is to make sure that we also convince them at some point. And so we're working on that. But we have this network of like passive ambassadors. We have on top of that active ambassadors, people who are using it for themselves and like it a lot and like to speak about it. And if you go to Twitter and read it, whatever, you will, you will see that happening and you will feed it's organic. But also we have now an extremely good indexing. If you look for the best crypto wallet in Google or in the App Store, you will, you will find us. We do also some paid marketing, but it's very, very minor. I think it's less than 30% of our traffic. So, so we do think, and as you understood, we, we can't use it in Facebook. We can't do Google. So basically can't do very much. We started to do now recently, we started to experiment with podcasting. So we're starting to learn how it works. And that's that really. But what we found was the most compelling way to acquire users was with product innovation. So we try to always be at the cutting edge of innovation in the space. And although the wallet looks super simple, it's actually the most sophisticated wallet in terms of security. You might not even realize it. I will give you an example. So, so we've done a pretty good job for the cryptography and making sure there is no single point of failure. But we have also created the most sophisticated authentication mechanism to let you in and recover your app. I don't know if you remember, but it's completely passwordless. You have never had to write down anything. And so that's really compelling because if you realize that not only you cannot make a mistake because there is nothing to remember, but no one else but you can use your wallet, no one else, right? So that we give you the absolute certainty that just Mac can use his wallet and no one else because it doesn't depend on, on even passwords, not just private keys. Also, something else that we've launched recently, once you are in Web3 and you're going to interact with all sorts of dApps, we have invented the very first firewall for Web3. We call it ClearSign, which allows you to understand in a human fashion, a human readable way, what you are signing for, right? I, you know, I'm, I'm going to sign a transaction. What am I signing for? Is it dangerous? Is it risky? Am I, am I likely to lose my assets? And things like that, although it sounds like very simple and, and obvious, 99.999% of the wallets don't do that at all today. That's why there were so many acts in Web3 and NFTs going away and so and being stolen. So we do all these kind of things. You don't see them in the wallet immediately, but as you progress, you find those elements and touch points of security that are 
there where you need them. And finally, one of the things that we do, I think, better than anyone else, and you know, I invite your audience or you to try, it's also something that you will not see as you get in the wallet, is the customer support. It's a magical area of the app. Anytime you have a question, you will have a human answer with a human being answering you in less than, than two minutes. Any time of the day, any day of the year. And this is done at scale. We're talking about hundreds of thousands, like I think nearly half a million people who have talked to us and received an answer in less than two minutes. So if you compare that to any kind of customer service on the planet, it's like really close to Amazon grade. And so this is something that's really tremendous for safety and for the comfort of, of using a wallet that makes you feel safe. So we've invested also immensely into that. And so by doing that, we've created excitement around the product and people wanting to speak about it and wanted to refer it to their peers. I have at least three questions in my mind <laughs> right now. The first one is, it's, it sounds like, you know, something that's pretty expensive, you know, having customer support. You also, as far as I remember, you do this like $10 in Bitcoin. That's the affiliate program, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering, like, what's the plan to make money on the wallet? Is it like the classic way where you just make money on swaps? Or is there any other ideas that you explore? So, so both. Uh, right now, we're, doing, uh, we're taking a coupon on any on-ramp of ramp swaps made through the wallet. So there are, you know, I said at the beginning, we were just doing send, receive Bitcoin, Ethereum. There was nothing else. Now you can do a lot more than that. You can buy, you can sell, you can swap crypto to crypto cross-chain not just, you know, on, on, on decentralized exchange on Ethereum. You can um, make a deposit in a savings account and earn APY on it, including on Bitcoin. So not just on Ethereum and stablecoins. So all those products, we're taking a coupon and it's transparent, the user sees it, etc. So that's the traditional way of making money and mini wallets make money actually that way. It's a very interesting way to make money. We make a lot of money and it's fine. We think there are also interesting avenues one of which is going to be launched probably this year, probably by the end of the year, which is around premium services. So services people will pay for. Cannot reveal today what they are, but they are pretty compelling. So there will be a, a mix, a hybrid of these type two of avenues. I, I think it's very similar to what you see in the traditional banking world, where a bank will take fees from investment products, but also will sell you stuff. And, and you know, they will make money also of, Subscriptions, you see that now with new banks doing that. Um, you know, the Revolut of the world and the Monzo and the N26, but also even like traditional bank now start to get there. So it's kind of going to be similar for us. We don't have a plan to introduce a token. So we think if we can do a great job as a wallet without that, without, you know, complexifying the logic and introducing, you know, a necessary burden, complete regulatory burden on ourselves. And we think that. That's going to be the way forward. Also, today we are addressing essentially retail investors. It might not be the case always. We might go to different type of audiences at some point. So that would be a different type of model. But for now, we really focused on, on retail. We want to be the best there and then move to different territories as we grow. A bit like, you know, Amazon.com was Amazon.com first and then they launched AWS six or seven years later. So I think it's going to be the very similar path. But for now, the model is the model I described. Mm -hmm. Okay, makes perfect sense. I, actually, I like this way of monetizing wallets because it's very elegant and clean. I mean, you know, like the user just don't even have to interact with these fees. They are just baked in and 
the user can just see whether they like the fees or not, and then just use the wallet and forget about it. You know, you mentioned this clear sign technology. So I would like to ask you more about it because this is something that I really like. I've watched your lecture about it on, I don't know, I, I think on some ETH conference. ECC. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was very interesting because, first of all, you translate on-chain information into like normal human readable language, which I like because like, you know, cold wallets are amazing, but on this small screen, you cannot sometimes understand what are you signing. Obviously, you can see it on your computer, but sometimes it can get pretty confusing. But also... As far as I remember, it's not the only feature of ClearSign. So apart from this translation, you also have other features. So could you expand on that and tell us how have you made it? Like what was the development process that led to, to that product? Sure. So it starts with the problem. And the problem is a pretty big one, is that when you sign a transaction with a decentralized application, you give a certain number of permission to that application to do stuff with your funds. Right. So sometimes it's harmless. It's just like, you know, giving you the right to view that you are you so that you can do stuff or just view. And so it's a view permission. So no harm there. But most of the time it's giving you giving the DAP the permission to actually withdraw and use the funds of your wallet. And there are all sorts of ways that they can do it. You can give a permission for a partial withdrawal, for a total withdrawal for the withdrawal of certain type of assets, of all type of assets. And the problem is that the way it's coded on the blockchain in a smart contract makes it virtually impossible for a normal or even an advanced user to understand how it works. And again, it's not so much about what type of wallet you are using. It's more about the type of contract that you are using, right? And so the way your private key or the key account management is done has nothing to do with the protection of the transaction but more about the security experience of the transaction itself. So something is there broken because the wallets were not built, at least until today, with the logic of protecting transactions. They were built with the logic of protecting the private key. But it so happens that because now Web3 is a thing and you can do stuff on-chain, which is not just storing crypto and sending and receiving crypto, but actually interacting with all those dApps and all those elements of, of the services that are built on chain, it's inevitable you need to use those funds with those dApps and for that you need to give permission. So that's the problem that is existing and those permissions are not readable and attackers and, and you know bad players have understood that as a way to attack in a new way. The users, they used to attack just the private key and try to fish the private key, but now they, they're doing that. So, so you know the typical use case is you think you're going to mint an NFT that you've seen wherever on Twitter, on a social media channel, on Red Discord. You click on it. It looks like something that is okay, either sometimes familiar because it's like you know, a replica or a clone of something that looks known. You tap on it. You give a permission thinking you are minting an NFT for 0.01 ETH. But what you've done in reality is that you gave permission to that application to withdraw everything into your wallet and you had no way to verify it because the wallet makes it impossible to actually verify that. So typically in a hardware wallet, you have a very, very tiny screen that displays gibberish of a hash transaction. 
And even in beautifully designed wallet on mobile and everything, the, the transaction hash is rendered in such a way that it's impossible to understand it. So that's the problem. So what we wanted to do is three things. The first one is we wanted to make sure that every transaction is readable, that it's, you can actually understand what happens when you sign a transaction. And so you see exactly what app you are using, the reputation of that application, the transaction amount, the type of permission that you're giving, and the, the next step. This is the first step. The second one is we give a degree of risk to that transaction. It's a white for unknown, yellow for risky, green for okay, and red, so it's a bit like a red light. Okay, so very simple. Red for dangerous. So dangerous is you're going to give permission to withdraw anything. And, and certain apps are completely legit, but sometimes give as per total permission. It's the case, for example, in, in lending platforms where they, they ask permission for everything. Why? Because, you know, they, if they need to call a collateral, they, they need to have that permission. But you need to be made aware of it. So we augment the awareness of the user of what type of risk he's taking when he's engaging with an application. And the third thing is that for certain applications that we know are not supposed to withdraw your funds, we actually can act as a firewall, meaning that we can stop a transaction from being actually performed. So typically, if you are going to authenticate with Colabland, Colabland is an application that is only meant for you to authenticate so that you, you can prove who you are. It's not meant to withdraw your funds. So if we see that someone tries to impersonate Colabland, we will actually block the transaction, right? If they try to impersonate the URL or even the contract. So the way we do it, because I anticipate you on this question, is we look at the signature structure and we interpret that signature structure based on what it's about to do, right? We're simulating the what's about to happen. And do we just render it into, into Zango. So if you want to, for example, see it in action, you can go to ENS or OpenSea or Uniswap or Colabland. You sign with Zango and you will see there that you will feel this experience being rendered in a way that is understandable and and verified. So, we, so it's a kind of a check mark that you have there. And so this is being done by way of interpreting the signature structure of the application. So now our job as a wallet is to always catch up with what's going on with the signature structure because it can evolve, right? It's not like it's done once and it's over. As we know, contracts are rewritten, for example, you know, typically OpenSea moved to a new uh, to new protocol, the Seaport, uh, recently. So the entire signature structure has changed. So you have to go after updating also and catching up and updating that. So it's not just like building the muscle to understand, but also building the muscle to catch up everything. And, and we don't cover all the applications today. We cover the main one. And when we don't know, we tell you that we don't know, but then it raises your awareness forces you to at least ask the question, am I using something safe versus like going blindly and giving a permission? So that's how ClearSign works. And that's ClearSign version 1.0. There are many, many more things that we're planning to add to augment what people should be aware of when designing a transaction so that they are better informed, they are better aware of the risk that they are taking. And also they are better, not just informed, there is actionable information that they can take 
after they made the transaction, right? Typically, for example, if they want to revoke or they should revoke a permission that they gave to an application at a time it was safe, but for some reason, because the contract was attacked or something, it became unsafe. So there's a continuity of, of protection even after the action. So we're not there yet. We're going there. But just to give you perspective of where ClearSign is going. It reminds me a lot of this, you know, Web1 firewall antivirus and so on, where I'm old enough to remember the early internet and it was a very dangerous place. Like there were so many scams. They were not attacking our funds because we didn't have wallets and there were very few e-banks, but they attacked our computers, you know, all these viruses, you click the wrong thing and now your computer is broken. And we solved that. I mean, like, it doesn't happen anymore unless someone is really going to some fishy, fishy sites. But this is a problem that has been basically solved by all this all this software. So I firmly believe that, you know, with solutions like ClearSign or m- maybe even others that will follow your lead, we can really solve this problem For regarding sure. the security. To me, it reminds me another industry which went through the same path is the industry of cars, right? And, you know, I don't know if you're old enough to remember, but there was a time where it was not mandatory to have a seat belt in a car. You could drive a car without seat belts. And later on, airbags were just an option. And today, it's unimaginable to have a car without seat belt and without airbags. And then now even like with uh, car crash detection and, and protection, it's like bread and butter of any car industry. And today, to me, it feels like the crypto industry feels like wallets are like cars without brakes without seat belts, without airbags, without car crash detection. This is the state that we are in. We basically tell to the user, go figure it out. If you have a problem, you're alone, do your own research, you know, and good luck out there. But this is insane. Like It cannot be the future. I mean, the security needs to be assisted or at least augmented so that the user is informed of the, the dangerous things that he could do or the harms he could do to himself. So, so we're still in a very historical phase, I think, in crypto, when you look at it from that dimension, right? And and although, you know, people still claim all day long, not your keys, not your coin, it's, it's blinding people to the real dangers of that industry. And this is why so many hacks are still happening, in, including with people who are sophisticated. So I think we're still in the early days. And I agree with you. I think there will be more I hope there will be more people doing things like clear sign because this is the only way forward. Otherwise, the industry cannot grow. Yeah, I really like this car analogy because when you think about it, you say that like, you know, default version of a car is a car that's safe, that have, you know, ABS, airbags, seatbelts and so on. But there are people who want these like raw cars, you know, this like kind of like an old school muscle cars that have no that have no ESP and you can just drive this car as you want and you have this raw experience and they can do it. But it's a very small subset of people. Most people don't want it because they would crash. There is this story, you know, about uh, Elon Musk and Peter Thiel. I don't know the famous story when they were driving Elon Musk's McLaren F1. And they were driving to Sequoia to talk about the merge between, you know, PayPal and X.com. And Musk was, you know, Peter Thiel said to him, 
hey, could you show me like how this car is going? And he's like, yeah, watch this. And then he just changed the lane and they were just like, you know, flying in the <laughs> in the air. And somehow they have not died. And Peter Thiel hitchhiked to Sequoia to get to the meeting with Mike Morris. But like, you know, this is what happens when you have a car without any, you know, control, any augmentation, any assistance. And I think... Wallets today are these cars like they they are sometimes very powerful. They have many, many options, but most people shouldn't even have these options. Yeah, look, I think the future will be a composite of many types of wallets and it's natural. I think there will be, as you said, you know, wallets for experts, wallets for collectors. But I think also the reality, I think no matter which type of wallet you're going to use, the security will need to be seriously better in terms of assistance. Because, I mean, today, what we've learned for the past 12 years is that security in crypto is a never-ending quest. There is always new type of paradigms, new type of surface attacks, new type of use cases, and that comes with new type of security risks. So what that means is that you cannot stop thinking about security because you are protected by a certain form factor. You need to look at the very, very essential primitives of where you can, where something can go wrong. And today it's very, very clear. The territory of transactional security is a huge white space where very little has been done. I mean, even what we have done today is not meaningful compared to where we want it to be. It should be way, way better than that. And yet nothing has been done yet. But I'm very hopeful because there are many companies right now working on that problem that are going to work with companies like us and, and bring better solutions to everyone. And I'm wondering, is clear sign just like, Zengo's technology, or can someone implement that technology in their products? How does it work? No, it's, it's really our technology. Everything we do at Zengo is only for Zengo. And for one reason, and very simple reason to understand, it's not just the engine that understands. The question is not, not so much just about understanding what's going to happen. It's around rendering it in a user experience that makes sense for user in the context of the app that is using. And this you cannot give away. You need to adapt per application, right? So the equivalent is like a spam engine in an email, right? The engine that makes spam is, is great, and you can probably sell it to many email services, but at the end of the day, the user experience of how you render it to the user and give him the control to say, this is spam, this is not spam, is proper to that email. So, so this is something that right now makes sense for each wallet to build, even if a technology is available. And just to give you an example, for example, when we see a transaction that is potentially red, we don't just say that it's red. That's not enough. We actually say twice, meaning we let you approve, and then we ask you again, are you really sure you want to die? And then if someone says, yes, I want to die, then we let him die with the transaction. But We've been telling him twice, and we've made that choice because of the user experience that we've built around it. So, so that cannot be given to a third party, right? You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. So, Oriel, like I have a question because we have talked about the things that you went on, the things that you developed. But I'm wondering, what have been some dead-end streets that you have explored? Some ideas that you thought were very good whether when it comes to the product, UX or marketing that were totally 
terrible and you just, you know, got your lesson from that, but never followed up. There is one thing that is, was not a dead end, but was never, that never felt at the right time. And so although it's already designed, developed, and, you know, with everything, we always found that there were things more important to ship before. So that's the, the problem of account transmission. What happens if you die, right? What happens if you're going to pass away or unable to access because you're incapacitated and stuff like that? And today, if you think about it, the private key wallets are a disaster for that because the first rule of a private key wallet is never, ever, ever, ever share your private key with anyone, including people that you know. So how do you transmit it when you're not here to do that? So that's a problem that we have resolved very elegantly and very safely. We still haven't found that it was compelling to put it to market before other things, but we will. There is an idea that we were spent a lot of time on and we decided to actually kill it. And it was painful because we spent a lot of time and money on it. It was, it was a card that was linked to the non-custodial wallet. So it was a, a Visa card. And eventually we felt that the complexity of the world of banking was so high around it and the human cost to process it for us as a company was so immense versus the benefits that it would give versus all the crypto cards that were already on the market were not going to be compelling enough to have an impact. So when you think in terms of impact, it was not such a bad idea. It was just that it was not compelling enough. So we decided to park it. doesn't mean that we won't do it later Maybe, but but we decided to completely stop so we can take a good focus on Web3 and do things like ClearSign and, and other things that we've shipped recently. So that's no, that was painful, but but that that was a choice that was uh, done. There are certain things that we've launched that we thought would be immensely successful, and uh, it was a bad timing. So at the time, we created a very very compelling user experience for. It was at the early days of Compound, where you you know the Compound protocol where you put money in. A, compound and, and it was, you know, uh, giving you some our APY. But by the time we've launched it, it was the first crypto winter and the APY like went like, you know, it was a disaster and the network fees to make a deposit were insane. So people had their money locked in it. And it was, so we learned at a high price that sometimes integrating a DeFi service in the UI is not necessarily a good idea. We were also one of the early and, you know, another learning is being early and first is not always a great thing. So for example, we it's always better to wait sometimes. But for example, we're the first wallet to support the Terra protocol. We never been prominent about it, but we were supporting Luna and Terra. And thank God we never pushed it and we never had a lot of users on it. But you know, happened what happened. And you know, some companies went bankrupt completely because they focused on it. So thank God we did not focus on it. Not only we did not focus on it, we never really pushed it, never invested deep into it. But, you know, we spent, we did spend a lot of time to develop the integration for it. Same thing in the early days of Libra, we spent some time to build a testnet wallet for Libra and eventually Libra went uh, where it went to the wall. So we made some bets that didn't pay off. And, but the price that we paid for it transformed itself into now a learning that we know how to evaluate when we look at another opportunity and a new opportunity and make better choices. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, like you cannot go out of the startup maze without any dead end streets. Like, you know, you always need to kind of. No. Just <laughs> and in the wallet world, because you're such a central interface and you can go in so many directions, it's, it's very easy to sometimes not make the right bets. I mean, I'm, I'm looking obviously at all the wallets in the space. 
I see what they're doing. I know what's working, what's not working. Everyone is making, you know, bad bets, mistakes. You know, another territory that is right now very, very shaky is the relations with Apple and Google. If you are a mobile wallet, very, very touchy territory because there are many things you cannot do, but you find out as you progress and as you ship stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that's another territory where developers learn the hard way, what they can and cannot do. And so anyway, that's, there are many, many pitfalls when you build a wallet. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, there's this question I always ask, you know, if you had a magic wand and could fix one thing about Web3, what would you fix? My God, that's a great question. I think the concept of gas is complete mess. Is I, I, I never understood why it existed in the first place. And uh, it must be probably some very good technical reason. It sounds like uh, something that exists for a very, very smart reason that makes sense on the paper and even in code, but that makes absolutely no sense from a user experience point of view. Like it's a, everything that we see are point of, it's an unnecessary point of friction. You know, typical example, you have a user that makes a deposit, opens a wallet, you receive his salary in USDC, right? Fantastic, he's been paid because he's a freelancer, receives a salary in USDC, gets his salary, and I'll say, yeah, I want to send some of my salary to my family or put it in, you know, in DeFi or whatever. He can't because he has no ETH. And so he has to figure out how to get his. So now he has to go to a decentralized to swap USDC to ETH, but he can't because he needs ETH to compute the, the swap. And so he needs to go to an on-ramp to get the ETH, which is like, it's an insane problem. And that problem is it's, 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 it's persistent across every single app. I just gave an example about so many others. So I, to me, the problem of gas, like if we could make ETH completely gasless, completely, I would solve an immense set of friction and, and problems. I'm trying to think if there is another thing, but that's the first one that comes to mind because we see it on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to do it because, you know, gas is basically like the price you pay for the computation of EVM. But like, yes. I understand this. Well, what you say, like even on Solana, where, you know, these transactions are almost nothing, but I, <laughs> too many times, sent all Solana from my Phantom wallet and I had some other coins there to the exchange to sell it. And then I was like, okay, how can I now take out these coins, the other coins that I had in my Phantom wallet? I was like, oh, fuck. So now I got to buy Solana again, send some small amount there. And it's so bad, UX, so bad. At least on Solana, you don't need another type of coin that is not Solana to send Solana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but if I want to send USDC, I need Solana to, like, like, to, to have it. So, that's, so th- that's, the, that's the problem I had. That's correct. On the other hand, you know, I wish I could make something in my wallet that I could say, okay, I approve all gas transactions from, I don't know, one cent to one dollar. And just don't ask me about it whenever I want to make a transaction. So, you know, especially if you use some low cost, you know, networks like Solana or Polygon, where these, they they are like cents. So I don't care. Just like take these cents and just fuck off. Just let me make my transaction. (laughs) So yeah, that's something that I I really wish. There is another thing I wish was significantly better and that actually could change completely the game in adoption. It's the mobile experiences of every single 
application built on Ethereum. They are built for the desktop, but they are not built for mobile. So when I say they are not built, is the, the cosmetics, the user navigation, but also the connectivity, the Wallet Connect experience. And we talk to the Wallet Connect team. Mobile to mobile is very, very tedious, very clunky, even with the second version of Wallet Connect. And they need something that is that feels more organic. And I don't think it's possible that it happens until Apple and Google be part of the game because it's really hard to do it as a developer alone. So that's necessary price. But I think developers could make significantly better effort as they build apps to build apps that fit well on a mobile screen because this is the most popular computing platform in the world. And some people only have that as a computer. And most developers don't build mobile application in the App Store. They're not mobile app developers and or Apple and Google will not let them also because of the restrictions. So they need to be in a mobile browser. And today the state of mobile to mobile is really, really disastrous. It's not good at all. So I, I wish this was also better. It's also very important, especially given how many people in Africa and Asia only have phones. Just yeah, like you said, like they are phone centric. So for them, it's super important to, to have a good experience on mobile. But it, even in developed countries, right? I mean, right now I'm doing this podcast from my iPad and I'm spending way more time on my phone than on my computer, right? And, and I live in a developed country and, and I'm sure many people are like that too. So the primary computing platform is completely ignored by the developer community. It's built for the desktop because this is where you build the apps, right? And so, so mm -hmm. still and then it's, a, it's still a world built by developers for developers and you feel it in the user experience, in the language and the way it's marketed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you can't build the apps because Apple and Google won't let you put these apps out there. So it's kind of like a, something, we are like kind of in, in this check where, you know, if you build the, I don't know, Uniswap app for iPhone, they won't let you get money or they would say, okay, we need 30% or like whatever. Yeah. So, well, the worst part would, uh, would be for NFT applications. I think for DeFi, it might be okay. You actually have some. I think don't think Uniswap has an app, but, you know, Paraswap has and if, uh, one inch has. And they're okay with, with DeFi, but with NFTs, you can't do Like, if you look at the OpenSea app on the App Store or on Google Play Store, you can't do a thing. You can just view, right? So, so it's completely pointless. All right, so you do it in the browser. But if you go to the mobile version of, in the browser... Uniswap, uh, not Uniswap, uh, OpenSea and all the NFT platforms are basically unusable. Like it's just impossible to yeah. conveniently browse and figure out what's going on and find have a transactional flow that makes sense and, and all these kind of things. Anyway, the point is today, the status, if I had the magic wand, I would do make it mobile first. And that would be, that would be okay. great and it would change everything. <laughs> okay. So I got another question. Like, what has been like, the funnest thing that happened to you, something that made you smile, laugh? So we see all kinds of funny stuff because we, there are a lot of people that are coming to crypto for the first time or not necessarily for the first time, but are in crypto for a while, but exposed to certain things for a first time. And sometimes it can be funny like when they talk to us on support and ask, you know, what's going on, you know. So I'm trying to think about a case. I think a user... What did he try to do? I think the concept of wallet addresses is still very blurry to many people. And so, so he was taking his wallet address, thinking it was a private key, <laughs> and trying to 
put it into some other wallet and say, right, look, your wallet is broken. I cannot import it into whatever MetaMask or whatever other crappy wallet out there. And it's only what I'm trying, what the hell are you trying to do? But it took us like 20 minutes to figure out what he was trying to explain because this is like such <laughs> impossible to figure out as a natural path, right? So we had this kind of this kind of scenario that has happened one and, and one as I realized that like, I, I, I was like showing to my kids like, what he's trying to do. And so we explained and we did it. And by the way, because we realized that so many people were not figuring out those basics, we, we created a podcast with the basics. Like, you know, there is like 20 episodes and each episode is a basic concept explained in plain words with examples because we found out that many times we had to repeat the same things. But it's one of the benefits of being a wallet is that you realize how insanely complex the world of crypto is and how disconnected the community of developers are from normal people. people most people don't get an inch of a percent of what is in crypto, even when they spend time on mm. it. And so, so sometimes we say, we kind of see those things and, and, you know, we say to people, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> okay. Okay. So Aurel, like where people can learn more about Zengo, where should they go to, to test it out and, you know, learn something about the technology, the way it works and so on. What's the best place? So Zengo.com website is there. You have um, links to download the app. It's in the App Store, in the Play Store. So if you type Zango, you'll find it. Very easy to find. We're on Twitter at Zango. We are extremely responsive in customer support. So if you need any help, you can learn from it there. We have fairly well-documented security sections in the app in pretty good detail. If you are a developer and if you like code, we have an open source library, which is fairly popular on GitHub. If you look for Zango X, which is the name of our research arm, you will find it there. And if you are a researcher, we have the most active Telegram group for researchers, and it includes the biggest brains in the field of MPC and threshold signature. I think even Vitalik Buterin is there. It's Zango X, so it's on Telegram also. So it depends what kind of audience you are. You will find the fit at your shoe uh, for sure. Okay, thanks a lot. So I'm wondering, like, the last question... I always ask about the guest ideas. Do you know any person that I should invite for a conversation that we have? Some builder that created something that you think is worth discussing? Good idea and good question. I'm trying to think about something that I've seen recently that was compelling in the field of... Did you already interview someone from the from ENS? No, no. Actually, they are on my list because this is one of the most fascinating. Yeah, I, I mean, I projects. really like ENS. You know, I should try to get Nick Johnson on the pod. I mean, I've been a really, really early adopter of ENS way before the hype. I'd even the opportunity to ask Nick Johnson early questions when the thing was under the radar at a DEFCON somewhere in Prague, and there were like twenty persons in the room. Now, obviously, it's like way more known. But to me, it's one of the most fascinating projects. And the reason why is because it was really a grassroots project, decentralized really from day one, like a really decentralized protocol with no company, no organization, you know, with the code and everything built around it. So no VCs around it, you know, no venture funding. So, but also the utility of it and what you can do with it, right? The concept of identity, 
and how you can replace a lot of the web to stacks with just centralized identity. So I think it's one of the most interesting mm -hmm. projects that I would look forward to listen to if you had them on a podcast. Okay, thanks a lot for this suggestion. So Oriel, we are getting till the end. Thanks a lot for coming. Thanks a lot for getting deep into details because that's what this podcast is about. It's about details. It's about really understanding what's under the hood. So thanks a lot for that. And, you know, good luck with the hard path of developing the wallet because this is one of the hardest products that you can build, but it's also one of the most important. So Agreed. I really cross my fingers that you will get more and more adoption with Zengo. We will. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. So this is almost the end, but if you like this episode and don't want to miss the next ones, feel free to subscribe. If you liked it a lot, I'd be personally grateful if you could give us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever platform you use. Thanks to these ratings, more people can learn about Web Free Talks, and it's really important to me. That's all for today. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.